Smith Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 268 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I was large and it massive with a swarm of toddlers. Swarm is the correct collective noun for toddlers, isn't it? That is absolutely the correct noun. How was that for you, Mick? It was brilliant. If you put me in a big tent with 90s rave music, I kind of don't care who else is there. <laughs> I had a really lovely yeah. time. I was mainly on the door. If your name's not down, you're not coming in. Stop crying. I know you're only three. Get out. No, it was great. My pal Karen does the Hotsy Totsy family rave and it's just joyous for everyone involved. Little children running around with glow sticks and acid house smiley faces on their clothes. It was, it was really, really good fun. I would like to come to one of those. I don't really like rave music, though. But, you know, you can always just sit and have a pint and sort of just sit and chat with people, which a lot of people are doing. The next one is October the 8th, and it's indoors at Penny's Social, which is a big brewery in Walthamstow. It'll be good. Lyra does love a dance. Or just take drugs, which is how most people enjoy <laughs> rave music, Gem. Absolutely. I think for a lot of parents there, they were they were having acid flashbacks, but without the acid. <laughs> I'm Hannah Zod-Levy, and I went fully cashless without realising. You're very zeitgeist. Yeah, obviously I use my card for most things, and my nephew persuaded me to start using Apple Pay, because I'm not an old lady yet, and I just really don't have any cash, and that came back to bite me on the arse when my card was cancelled because somebody had been in my bank account, and I have to wait till Thursday, and a friend of mine had to bring me cash around because I need to buy things. And there was just that was, I don't know, I told you, I had a route around, I think £1.60 or something I found. It was ridiculous. Normally I find lots of money when I'm on the hunt, or previously I've found lots of money. I just don't have it anymore. And by money, I mean cash. To be clear, I have money. I just can't access any of it. My sympathies are waning. You're just boasting now. Sure, uh, like a little tin that you put. I mean, obviously, my, the tin that I used to put change in all the time doesn't have as much money in it as it used to before I took it to Coinstar or Asda or whatever. But I do still have like a little tin with some 20p's and whatever. Do you not have that? That got spent the last time, you know, I didn't have a card and I've not replaced it. Yeah, they don't fill up as quickly these days, do they? I've not had coins. Because that's what's, what Monzo's for. Yeah, my penny jar is in Monzo. My kind of, yeah. like, it goes round up and put it in the penny jar. But that's no use to you if you can't access your bank account. And thanks for offering to put money in my bank account, which is what everybody has done. And I kept <laughs> saying, that's not the problem. Thank you, people, but that's not the problem. I'm sorry to wang on about this, but uh, I'm Jen Offord. And according to my driving instructor... I am unlike any student he has ever taught before, and I don't think that was a compliment. Right, that was going to be my next question. Is that a, you're not like other girls? No. Line. No, no, that's not what he meant by it. He said, these were his exact words, you don't learn in a way that I have ever experienced before. Okay. Can you add a bit of context there, Jen? (laughs) I asked him, look, I don't know if you can give me an answer to this, but like, are we getting towards the end of this now are we anywhere near the point at which I might feasibly pass my driving test and he said it's quite hard for me to say because you do not learn in a way I've ever experienced before he said you get the people who are so bad and you're not like that but you're not very consistent in the way that sometimes you're all right and sometimes you're really not all right and I can't really predict 
how it's going to be. So like sometimes you get in the car and you drive it and sometimes you get in the car and you point at the gear stick and go, what's that? Basically, yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. Don't take a test yet. Do you think that he's mostly taught young people to drive? I think he might have. Oh, I think most driving instructors mostly teach young people to drive, don't they? Yeah. I suppose there is a, a logic that we learn differently to how we used to. I will certainly learn more slowly the older you get. I believe it becomes harder to learn. And I think also with driving, probably the older you are, the more of a sense or like imagination for things that could go wrong is there. Whereas when you're young, you're cocky. Maybe you're not like thinking about that stuff. I don't know. I've always been pretty risk averse. But yeah, he's still telling me to speed up all the time. So that basically tells you everything you need to know. The great news about learning at your age, though, Jen, mm. is when you eventually pass, you'll be able to afford the insurance to drive a car, <laughs> which is, you know, not what happens when you learn when you're younger. Yeah. You're like, oh, wow, I can drive. What? A thousand dollars? That costs more than my fucking car. More than all of my cars till I was in my 40s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Coming up, journalist Sheila Banerjee chats to me about the power of names and how she's used them to examine the history of modern multicultural Britain. I chat to Team GB triathlete Jess Learmonth about being a gold medalist, support for athletes on maternity leave and gearing up for the next Olympics. And how many vampires does it take to make tomato soup? In Rated or Dated, we're watching Wesley Snipes very much do his thing in 1998's Blade. But first, the World Cup, the World Cup, the World Cup and the World Cup. It's time for the British Telegraph. Cue the World Cup. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we will not be hoping to convince men into taking us seriously. Here, here, but tell me a bit more about that. <laughs> Gianni Infantino, the uh, president of FIFA, has been at it again, talking. Fucking hell. Saying stuff. Basically, what he said ahead of the World Cup final was that the doors were open, we just needed to come and push them, or something, women that is, and that what we needed to do is we need to convince men to take women's football seriously and I'm like I don't think that's our job no. Jenny I don't think that's our I don't think that's our place if you're the president of FIFA do I have to convince you are you yeah. not signed up I don't know tell me I'm, I'm interested well kind of an extension to that Jen mm. I want to talk about the fact that neither the Prime Minister nor Prince William attended Sunday's final mm. or more accurately I'd like to talk about the reaction to it which was such a marvellous distraction from the fact that a group of women had actually achieved something. And I know that sounds very cynical. And yes, I know a lot of women, including the Women's Equality Party, saw this as a snub, stating that this would never happen if the men's team got into the World Cup final. And that may well be right. The monarchy and the government being institutionally sexist doesn't sound like a reach. But we've no way of knowing... A men's World Cup has never been held so far away from the UK before and the men's team has spectacularly failed to be in the final since before Sunak, Prince William, Jen or I were born. If you spent any time on Twitter this weekend, you'll know you couldn't avoid the they'd have gone for the men talking point. A lot of women were saying it. And lots of men, including many who were soaking up the sweet, sweet likes and retweets. <laughs> while a cursory look at their timeline <laughs> revealed the depth of their ambivalence to this World Cup before it provided a convenient weapon to wield at their enemies. Anyone <coughs> in James particular? James O'Brien. <laughs> Let's take 
the Prime Minister and Prince William separately. As far as I'm concerned, Sunak doesn't deserve to watch England (laughs) in a World Cup final. He's sitting atop a bloated corpse of a government and he only has that job because the last two people in it would be the top answers if family fortunes ever asked the question, (laughs) who is the shittest prime minister we've ever had? (laughs) The country is in a terrible state. So why reward him by allowing him the PR opportunity of glomming on to one of the few things about England that doesn't make you want to curl up into a ball and scream? Yeah, I I can't argue with that. Prince William, I understand, is a different matter, being both a member of the royal family and the president of the FA. Although it's worth pointing out that those roles are inseparable in that he can't act solely as the president of the FA because he's a member of the royal family and he's only the president of the FA because he's a member of the royal family. I saw some suggestion that there might be a constitutional reason why William couldn't go. No. Being to do with the heir not being allowed to visit a country before it's had a visit from the reigning monarch. I bring this up not because I think it's a good excuse, but because I think it's a good example of how ridiculous the monarchy is and why we should probably stop promoting people to additional positions of power just because they were born into it. We obviously saw a lot of the argument that we pay the royals and they should work for us, which is both a good point and a good introduction to the sunk cost fallacy in that every single thing they do costs us more money in terms of security costs. And I'm not even sure that the cost of the visit to Australia, where Charles is also king, is borne by the UK taxpayer. I think the Aussies would probably have had to pick up the bill, which, given Prince William's visit, would have not benefited them in any way, seems a bit 19th slash 20th century to me. But, of course, it's not my job to tell anybody else how to feel about this. I just think in the build-up to the Women's World Cup final, making two men the central topic of the conversation is a huge own goal. If feminists want to dismantle the patriarchy, of which the royal family and a Tory government are very much a part, the best way to do that is to remove their power over us. And stage one is to stop seeking their approval. If men don't want to support us, or celebrate with us, then insert gif of Mary Earp shouting fuck off here. Yeah, I, I agree with most of what you said. I do think the fact that he's the president of the FA, probably the, the optics aren't great, I think. But um, I don't know anything about the constitutional situation. I just wonder why we have a member of the royal family in charge of the FA, because this thing will likely come up again if we're ever I don't know. good at, at I don't know. I think it's is sport. it like... It's something to do with it being perceived as the national game, isn't it? I think. I can't answer that question, Hannah. I don't know. I don't know who the president of like the rugby football union is, for example. No, no idea. Me neither. Before Prince William, it was, it was Prince Philip before Prince William. Definitely someone royal before it was Prince William. And then Prince William took over a, a while ago now. Certainly, if it was Prince Philip, it was before he died. But anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about. None of these things might be facts. They might all be mistruths. So I'm going to stop talking. A lot of the things I saw on Twitter, Jen, may or may not be facts. I just think there's been a lot of chat about how women's football doesn't need to be men's football. Yeah. It's an opportunity to do things differently. And if that opportunity is to unshackle yourself from a failing government and, you know, a ridiculously dated institution like the monarchy, then maybe that's what it takes. 
I mean, I one hundred. 100% agree with you about Rishi Sunak. Like, I, I, I would have been sad if they'd won and he mm. got to shake their hands. So. Yeah. And so let's look at what happened in that final, shall we? Well, of course, you already know that after becoming the first senior England side to reach a World Cup final since 1966, in the end, the Lionesses could not outclass Spain, who beat us 1-0. We didn't play as well. They were undeniably the better side. And when you look at what has been going on in their squad of late, that place in the final really was deserved. Now, I've spoken about it briefly on the podcast before, but in September last year, a massive 15 players from the Spanish squad announced they did not wish to be selected to play for their country in protest against the management of head coach George Vilda. Wow. In identical emails sent to the Royal Spanish Football Federation, the women cited a lack of professionalism that had a significant impact on their mental and physical health. For his part, Vilda, who's managed the team since 2015, said he was deeply hurt. Oh. But how did the Federation react to this mutiny, I hear you ask? Well, I paraphrase a little bit here, but they, they told them to fuck off is what they did. In a statement, the RFEF said it would not allow, this is a quote, allow the players to question the continuity of the national coach and his coaching staff, which I suppose is fine, but 15 players is quite a lot, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The manoeuvres, it said, were far from exemplary, threatening to disqualify the mutinous players for two to five years and said that they could only return to the squad if they accepted their mistake and asked for forgiveness. Only three of those players returned for the World Cup. All power to that Spanish side for an incredible performance and an incredible World Cup, less so to the men at the top who have consistently undermined them. Well, quite. Christ on a bicycle. So, Jen, we may not have won. And by we, I mean England. I know that not everyone listening supports England, but there is still good news. And by that, I mean, let's take a look at how many people watched the whole tournament. We're recording this on Monday, so there's no official figures yet on how many people saw the Lionesses play Spain on Sunday. But estimates suggest it may have been as high as 13 million people. Wow. In the UK. Wow. What we do have figures for is England's semi-final win against Australia, which drew a peak of 7.3 million viewers on BBC One, with an extra 3.8 million streaming it on the iPlayer or BBC Sport digital platforms. Not bad at all, especially given we're in the middle of holiday season. And also the middle of the day on a work day. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile... In Australia, Seven's coverage of the same semi-final reached 11.15 million people nationwide, making it the largest audience for a sporting event in the country since a new way of calculating ratings was introduced in 2001, which means more people watched it than have watched any men's football World Cup and perhaps more impressively than any rugby World Cup match. Yeah, that, that is quite a big deal, isn't it? I would say. Meanwhile, the four US matches averaged nearly 3.8 million viewers in the US, which is up 2% from the last World Cup. And granted, that's not a huge leap, but it's worth noting those matches were played overnight in most US time zones. People got out of bed to watch Mm -hmm. that. Now, I know we can't really tell much from anecdotal information, but I want to finish on something about my street in Cambridge, which was enjoying a lovely sunny day 
as the World Cup final kicked off, at which point it went silent. No lawns were mown, no cars were washed, nobody was sitting in their garden. Everyone was watching England in the World Cup final. And if that's not a sign that the mood has changed about women's football, I don't know what is. Yep, exactly the same in Harwich. Lovely sunny day. I went around to my friend's house to watch it. No one doing anything completely silent. And then, like, you know, within sort of 15 minutes of it finishing, all the lawnmowers started up and the kids started screaming and blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, absolutely that. The cacophony resumed about 15 minutes afterwards. Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we wish we were allowed to use music on our podcast so that we could play the Paul Hardcastle Top of the Pops theme tune and literally give you a sexism top 40 rundown from these last few weeks. (laughs) Can can we do it between us? Do you know it? Can we hum along? Sort of like that? Yeah. Or maybe I could do like a bullseye in one. (laughs) Yes, please, Hannah. So let's (laughs) skip straight past the role model chat because we only need to look at what's happening with Mason Greenwood at Manchester United at the moment to see that the jury is very much out on whether or not the same standard is expected of male footballers, as in whether or not they are role models. Let's not dwell on the FA's decision that it wouldn't pay £100,000 bonuses to the Lionesses if they went on to win the tournament, which is, by the way, a fifth of what the men's team stood to gain if they'd won in Qatar. And a move that was branded by Ian Wright as embarrassing. Can we just stop for a minute and say that everything I said about the way that a lot of men talk about the World Cup, Ian Wright is just the absolute antithesis of that. Yeah. He has it so right couldn't be more supportive and does it in a way that is never condescending it's never patronizing it's really yeah no like massive props to Ian right so we could talk about Nike making a commercial decision not to sell Mary Earp's replica goalkeeper kits in the run-up to the tournament fuck off only for her to go on to win the golden glove sticks out tongue Maybe we could mention that although the Lionesses achieved parity in terms of match fees with their male counterparts in 2020, Serena Wiegmann, who has reached a World Cup final and won the Euro with the Lionesses, is reported to earn £400,000 a year, not to be sniffed at, but compared to Gareth Southgate's £5 million a year. (laughs) That is a bit more than 10%, isn't it? We've already talked about Gianni Infantino, representation at the final, and I'm not going to dignify smaller goalposts and pitches with a response. So let's head back to the Royal Spanish Football Federation for this week's absolutely mind-bending sexism of the week. Mm. Now, Hannah, imagine the scene. You're Harry Kane. Just imagine, obviously, no one here is Harry Kane, but imagine you're Harry Kane. You've just captained... Is he the one with the beard? He's the sort of tall one with the overbite. He's just gone to play for Bayern Munich. Okay. You've just captained your country to victory in the World Cup. Prince William has bothered to turn up and you head to the podium to collect your medal from him. He congratulates you on your performance, lifts you off your feet, um, puts both of his hands on your face and uh, plants a smacker on your lips. I don't like it, Jen. And I also don't think Harry Kane would like it. I don't think he'd like it either. And more to the point, I don't think Prince William would do it. But anyway, it's it's quite hard to imagine. 
And yet, that is exactly what the Federation's president, Luis Rubiales, did to Spain's top goalscorer, Jenny Hermosa, after the World Cup victory. Afterwards, Hermosa commented that she did, echoing your sentiments here, Hannah, did not enjoy the experience. (laughs) No shit. (laughs) Fair play, Jenny. I don't think I would either. Fortunately, the Federation is well known for its respect for women and Rubiales instantly apologised. No, sorry. Sorry, he didn't. (laughs) The kiss with Jenny, he asked. Wiv is doing a lot of heavy lifting yeah. here, isn't it? <laughs> there are idiots everywhere, he said. When two people have a minor show of affection, we can't listen to idiocies. Call me a massive fucking idiot. <laughs> Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by journalist, academic and author Sheila Banerjee. Sheila, hello. Hello. So, Sheila, your new book, What's in a Name, is a blend of history, memoir and politics, and it tells the history of our modern multicultural Britain using the keyhole of names. I really loved this approach to examine our country through family trees, basically, and names. So let's start with yours. Tell us about being Sheila Banerjee, because it has been, at times, a complicated emotional journey, right? Yeah, totally. I mean... For a start, I was called Sheila, and if you place me back in time, you know, I'm a seven-year-old little brown girl in the middle of Hayes, a very white English working-class area, and I'm the only one in my class called Sheila. I'm the only one in my class with an Indian surname. And, you know, Sheila was then the name of much older women. Uh You know, it was a name that my parents had seen on telly, I think the comedian Sheila Hancock, something like that. And they thought, oh, it's an Indian name and if it's an English name, it will work. But actually, nobody my age around me was called Sheila. So it was almost like a kind of dress that didn't fit properly. You know, it was always a bit like, why why have I got this name that belongs to my friend's aunties and stuff? (laughs) Banerjee obviously completely marked me out as foreign. I was surrounded by Allens and Smiths and Davises. And that name, that single word in my classroom immediately identifies me as the child of immigrants and everything that comes with that. Yeah. That's the start. But I, I could I could go on, obviously. I want you to go on because what is incredibly interesting is obviously the, there was a whole load of shit that you got from having that name in the UK. But there was a different context to it when you went to India, wasn't there? Yeah, so I almost went with that name from the bottom of the pile to a much more privileged position in India. For example, growing up in Hayes in the 70s, you're a foreigner. And what I didn't know at the time was that there was a lot of racial tension, a lot of racism towards Asians because there'd been a huge influx of Asians from East Africa, The Gujarati Asians coming over after India. I mean, the National Front were on the rise. Enoch Powell had been doing the rounds in the 60s and 70s, you know, calling for immigrants to not be allowed into the country. I was a little girl. I didn't know any of this. But Hayes was right in the middle of this in a way because next door was Southall, which was full of Punjabi immigrants. And we were living amongst the people, not everybody, obviously, but a lot of people who didn't want Asians there. And it was quite a racist environment. And so having a surname like Banerjee, you immediately, as a child, you kind of absorb the feeling around you. And I was never proud of it then. Obviously, later on, that changed a lot. But it was a foreign name. Nobody could pronounce it. They were like, oh, Blargy, Banjo, Banaji, Baintree, all of this kind of thing. And it's 
it's not something that you're as a kid you, you don't totally know why this is but you've seen like the wogs out signs on the toilet doors at school or national front signs graffitied everywhere there's people laughing at our accents your name is kind of part of that it's almost like a symbol of what's going on and the, and the way that people respond to it is part of that and then we went back to India we'd already been in India for a while we went back to India in 1979 and it all changed mm-hmm. when we went to India suddenly it's a completely different matter and also not in a particularly good way I mm. would say because Banji is a Bengali Brahmin Hindu surname as a Brahmin, you're at the top of a very rigid social hierarchy, the caste system, where your position in that hierarchy is determined by name. And this system, when I went back in the 70s, not so much in the cities, but where we were from just outside of Kolkata in a place called Cholunogor, was still very much in existence. And as soon as people heard your surname then, Banerjee, Chatterjee, Mukherjee, these kinds of Brahmin surnames, you've immediately got, you've almost got centuries of sort of unearned privilege. And so you have gone from being almost the most reviled group in England in the 70s, an immigrant child with this funny foreign surname and this first name that doesn't fit, to having a surname that's completely venerated with this, what I think now is kind of undeserved privilege, really. Uh Um, And, you know, my family were from a middle class family. They had everything that goes with that over there. So it's a very different situation. I suddenly found myself as a kid with this name. What a contrast as well, going from being the victim of other people's unearned privilege in the UK to being the owner of unearned privilege in India. I mean, I don't know how you manage that at any age, but as a little one, like when you're trying to work out what fits and why, that is so confusing. It's so confusing. I do think it sort of informed my subsequent sort of left-wing politics. I didn't feel it was right. We were living in Kolkata, a city in the 70s that was ravaged with poverty. There were beggars everywhere, there were slums everywhere. And yet my family, I could see, you know, they they had servants, they had people coming in and cleaning their house all the time. I could see as a kid, because I'd come from another country, that this wasn't right. But at the same time, there's also another layer to the name, because Banerjee isn't my actual name. My actual name in Bengali is Bondobagthaya. And it was changed by the British because they couldn't be bothered to pronounce it or they couldn't pronounce it. And they could, they could change it because they were in charge. Uh And it was a sin of colonial subjugation as well. And that's another thing that I found out later. So names like Banerjee, Chatterjee, Mukherjee, Ganguly, those aren't our actual names. It's Banerjee is Bondobadthaya, Chatterjee is Chottobadthaya, Mukherjee is Mukhobadthaya. And you're kind of carrying round Yes, that history, but also that kind of, to me, quite horrible colonial history and the fact that they had the power to change our name and that we accepted it and often changed it ourselves to go along with it. It's a symbol of of the economic and military power that lay behind the British in India, I think, at that time. My colleague Hannah and I were chatting. We're both Irish heritage and when we looked at our family trees and tried to investigate it, like one of the problems, particularly when you go and look for the women in a family tree, which we will get onto, is they, they're all called the same or it's the same person, but with different spellings. 
And we were saying that obviously a lot of people in our history will have been illiterate. So they weren't writing down how they spelled their name. So pronunciations was lost. Actual names were lost because the British were just writing down what they wanted to write down. I had that with my Jewish friend, Marcella's name. Her surname's Gatsky, but she's lost the original name because in the transition from pre-revolutionary Russia as a Jewish family, fleeing the pogroms and coming over here and being in absolute poverty, not speaking English, they were just kind of given whatever name and it was never recorded. And so they don't even know what their original name is. And I think that is so true for a lot of immigrants. And there's a lot of trauma that is carried in the loss of, of the name, I think. And and similarly with Banerjee, obviously there's a lot of trauma that's evolved in the exercise of power that allowed them to change our names. You know, there's huge Bengal famines that happened throughout British rule in a way that hadn't happened before. Yes, there had been some famines, but nothing like the scale of the famines that happened while the British were in charge. There's so much extraction of wealth mm-hmm. and destruction of industries. All of that is, I think, sort of contained in a way in our names, like you say, like with Irish names as well. You know, the loss of often of that O at the start of an Irish name. Like I've got a friend whose surname is Grailney, and I think they used to be O'Grailney or something similar. But the O disappeared and that disappearance of that O is tells such a story of trying to fit in and trying to build a new life and trying not to be singled out as well. Oh, God, can you imagine if I was Mickey O'Noonan? I think I'd just win. I'd just win Ireland, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think there's a notion that your name is the one thing that people can't take away from you. But it becomes clear when you like scratch the surface and throughout your book that that is just bullshit. It's, It's absolute nonsense. So let's talk about your book before we, we chat more. Tell us a bit about how What's in a Name works. I start with my name and growing up with my name and also what it meant in India as well and explaining the kind of Hindu heritage of that, the good and the bad, you know, the strictness of the caste system. But also, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's all bad because I love aspects and Hindu philosophy. I love my grandparents, obviously. Uh, so that complicated story and and the story of growing up in Hayes in Elta West London in the 70s and 80s. Basically, I was trying to think of a way to write this book. And I, I first of all wrote, I had written about my own name for a Guardian article. And then I kind of thought, well, to broaden it out, what names can I write about? And as soon as I started thinking about my friends, I thought, oh my God, they've all <laughs> got brilliant stories. And also, I know them. I know a lot of their stories and I know they're brilliant storytellers as well. So I interviewed my two friends from Sixth Form College. So I've known them like since the 80s or something. They're like two of my closest friends, Marcella Gatsky, who's Jewish, and Liz Hussain. So there's an interesting story there with, you know, the coming together of Elizabeth and Hussain, the British Indian mm. story. And then when I went to work in Tele years ago, it's over 30 years ago, I became friends with somebody called Denise, but her surname is Celebaratni, and there's a whole story there. And one of my other closest friends, Maria Timotheo, it was all about, you know, naming your child and do you follow family tradition? She's Greek Cypriot, or do you go your own way? And in a way, it sort of epitomise the struggles that I also know that Maria has been through with that sort of tension between 
follow your culture and your traditions of the family and living your own life. And it seemed to sort of crystallise in the naming of her son, Alexi. And my friend Hugo, who's one of my best friends who sadly passed away. It's, um, it's oh, sorry. Sharon. Yeah, which was really, really sad. But it's really, you know, it was really touching also to sort of write about her brother-in-law who she is close to and who I've also known for a long time. And he's he's called Hugo White and he's Jamaican. He came over here in the 70s and to tell that story. So it fell into place when I started thinking about my friends' names. And then I suddenly realised that what I'm doing almost is telling the story of a generation that's grown up, born here, grown up here in a particular era of race history and you know I don't feel like I see that many stories in particularly of middle-aged Asian women for example I don't see us on telly and if we are on telly or on things like Bridgerton or whatever it's almost as if they're telling the story of a white character but has put in a kind of Asian actor there Mm -hmm. even if they have a, a name it's often a name where you can't tell who they are they might be called Goldie or sort of I think I saw somewhere there was an Asian actor playing a quite a big Oh, and that's true. It was a, it was a guy this time again, a middle aged guy around my age in Sherwood. That's what it was, and he was called Andrew Fisher. And I thought, what Asian is ever called Andrew Fisher? It's really odd. And so I feel like our stories are often not out there in that way. And if we've gone through the Enoch Powell, the the race immigration laws, you know, the seventies, the riots, the uprisings. Tony Blair and all that promise and disillusionment, you know, all of it, we've kind of been through it. And in a way, what's in a name is a telling of that story of this time that we've been in. I think you are the generation or that is the generation that has potentially had the most dissonance because your parents have tried to settle, but obviously bring quite rightly all of their culture and kind of attachments Whereas you're born here and there's that inner fight and often rejection of history as you try to fit in and just be British, in inverted commas, because who the fuck knows what that means. But yeah. does that does that make sense? Totally. I mean, especially as a kid, as a kid, you are just, you're just trying to fit in. You're trying to survive. So when I arrived here, age six, we'd been in India for a while. I was mixing with my cousins, but we were all desperately trying to be British. We were all like watching Top of the Pops, singing along to Greece songs, we loved Christmas, we supported England. And you spoke, I've probably still got the remnants of it actually. Now, as, to, as I'm talking about my childhood, you know, you're trying to be as English, as Cockney as possible. You don't want a trace of an Indian accent. And you absorb all of this in your head. And the society around you is telling you to be English whether to be white, etc., is the superior thing, is the best thing. And so we all tried to fit in, but at the same time, you've got your very, well, we had a very hermetically sealed Bengali family at home. We'd meet every Friday and Saturday, all the school holidays. It would just be us. It was three or four families, my two aunts to my uncle's family and my cousins, and that would be it. And we spoke Bengali to my parents, my aunts and uncles. We ate Bengali food. I ate it with my hands. They all cracked jokes in Bengali. We were always planning to go back to India or going to India. And so it was a very 
sort of, um, you know, it was completely one world was at odds with another. It was such a contrast. And you kind of was, you were thinking with two minds almost at, at some points. One side was your Indian side. The other side was the English side that, that was thinking everything about the Indian side was really rubbish. There's a lovely line when you're back in India and you say, and to my annoyance, I've started thinking in Bengali. Oh, my God. It was like my tongue was twisting around and my head, there were snakes writhing in it. I kept trying to hold on to my English side because I knew that my parents before had gone back to England. So I was worried, what if they go back to England and I return thinking in Bengali and talking with an Indian accent? I'll be crucified. But I could feel like my accent slipping and it was terrifying. They came back after a year and I must have had traces of it. But obviously I got rid of it as soon as I could, which is so sad, really. You know, there's something wrong with an Indian accent. Why? Why was it thought to be so bad? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have any answers. Just uh, like, <laughs> what? What's in a name is really powerful in its depiction of the community that can come from difference, you know, that we're all like from different places. We're like, Britain is an absolute mongrel nation. We're, you know, we all come from different places. And instead of fighting about that, there's a real community in difference and celebrating each other's difference. And I think you do that really beautifully in your book. I was watching the Netflix series Painkiller and one of the characters based on the real life, well, he's dead now, person, Arthur Sackler, says the line, the single most valuable thing you will ever own is your name. Do you think that's true? I don't necessarily think it's your name. I think it's one of the most powerful expressions of yourself, of where you come from and also of how the world sees you. And it is really important. I mean, that's why Muhammad Ali changed his name, you know, because names are power. He changed it from Cassius Clay, what he called a slave name, to Muhammad Ali. And they are, they're really important. They're more important than you think. They symbolise things that are really important. Your gender, your class, your race, all of that, I think, is sort of contained in your name. Mm. It is. And it's so interesting. I really enjoyed journeying backwards and forwards with you and your friends. And yeah, it made me think about my name, which again, as a kid, I really hated. Yeah. Noonan sounded weird and it was so easy for people to use it and, and manipulate it and tease me with it. So yeah, it's, it is kind of comforting to know that a lot of people go through that disconnect with their name and we either grow into fit it or we change it to fit us, I guess, is the other option. Yeah. What do you feel about it now? My real name is Michaela Noonan, and I still feel like I'm in trouble if someone calls me Michaela and no one calls me Michaela. But yeah, Mickey Noonan, I really like it now. I like that it's kind of, if you just saw it, you don't know if that's a man or a woman. You know, that there's, you know, there's clearly an Irish heritage there with Noonan. It's, yeah. it's a very obviously Irish name. I do sound like an old Irish boxer. I quite like that. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it took a while. It absolutely took a while. How do you feel about Sheila Banerjee now? Yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to get used to Sheila. I think my parents did really well. I wasn't teased about it, which is probably one of the reasons why they gave me the name. But I did eventually, I found out what it actually meant. You know, Sheila comes from Sheil, and Sheila, these long black stones that are often garlanded with flowers all over India that they used to pray to either Shiva or Vishnu. And then I also liked the history, that it's a history of them coming over to this country. It tells that story. 
And biology is always going to be complicated for me. But I kept it. You know, I'm married. I could have become Sheila Cannell, who sounds like a completely different kind of lady. (laughs) Uh, Who I am. But yeah, I've kept it because it's a tie to my Bengali heritage. And lots of it I absolutely love. I also love so much about Hinduism. I used to love going into my... Nern's kind of room when she after she'd been praying with all the incense and all the statues of the gods and the goddesses and you know having having the sweets that she'd offer to the gods and goddesses she'd offer them to me afterwards and it was just really kind of fun as a kid mm-hmm. so yeah no I, I totally I totally I like my name now but I do think it's a complicated matter the whole names thing Totally. I have also kept my name when I got married. I got married a little bit later in life, but people were like, oh, you know, I'm like, no, this is this is my name. And the argument was like, well, it's your dad's name. And I'm not in contact with my dad. I'm like, no, no, this is my name. But it took a long time to get there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? It's like women's names, as you say. I think the fact that so many of us change our names, and I see so few men taking their female partner's name, if it's a heterosexual marriage. I think that it's, again, it's a symbol of what's going on in our society, that the, the, the feminist fight still got to be fought. Oh, my God, and the, so much. the name shows it, really. Absolutely. You know, and, and when I was writing the book, it was really difficult because I ended up always writing about people's paternal ancestors because mm-hmm. that's the story that's contained in those names. And it's really hard, actually often to find out about the female side. You know, they're not in the records, their original family names. It's really telling, that thing, the disappearance of names as well. It's really interesting. I mean, interesting is a very simple answer and the answer is patriarchy, but the women, uh, like our history is deleted as they go, basically. That's a whole other podcast chat, though, if I'm honest with you, Sheila. We don't have time. (laughs) So What's in the Name, Friendship, Identity and History in Modern Multicultural Britain is published by Scepter and out now. Sheila, where can people follow you on the socials to find out what else you're up to, please? I'm on Twitter. Um, I God bless you. There's still a few of us there. I'm still calling it Twitter as well. I don't know what to call it. I'm on X. <laughs> so that sounds really weird. <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, under Sheila Banerjee Words. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of there. They want to find out a bit more. And yes, so that would be great. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. That was lovely. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Team GB triathlete Jess Learmonth. Hi, Jess. Hello. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thanks for the chat. First of all, we should talk a little bit about your career you have had an extremely successful career. You're a European champion, Commonwealth Games silver medalist. You've got a stack full of World Triathlon Series medals. And of course, you were a gold medalist at the Tokyo Olympics in the mixed relay. This okay. is probably a bit of a stupid question. How did that feel? Oh, gosh, it's surreal, I'd say, because I, I came into this sport in a kind of different direction to most. I was like, just doing it as a, a hobby when I was like 22, 23. Really? And then, um, yeah, kind of worked my way up. And and I'd never thought ever that I would go to the Olympics, never mind, get a medal. So 
it's uh, it's still kind of surreal now, I'd say, you know, to think that it actually happened. And I probably wouldn't have even thought I'd be able to go to the Olympics even probably 2018. You know, it was it's it all just kind of happened. And uh, you kind of have that, how did this happen? <laughs> but at the same time, it, I'm still enjoy it. And I find, you know, I'm really grateful it happened. And I never take it for granted. I'm not one of these that I, I kind of did that. And I think, what next? I I quite like it and I enjoy that it happened and kept my time in kind of setting new goals. Do you ever just like wear your medal around the house? No. No? I would. No, I would just. Really. I think you're missing a trick. I would wear it to the shop if I had one. <laughs> it's actually really heavy. It's quite uncomfortable, I'd say. They are heavy, aren't they? I've, I've held yeah. an Olympic medal before, obviously yeah. not my own. They're reassuringly weighty, I would say. Yeah, we'd, you would want one, you, you don't want to get there and then get in like. That's crap. What is this? Uh, so it's quite substantial, which is decent. You had a really good run up to those Olympic Games. Obviously, now you are embarking on a new challenge because you are pregnant with your first child. Congratulations. Oh, thanks very much. Was that a difficult decision to make to get pregnant at that point where things were going so well in terms of, of your sport? Yeah, well, it, in fact, wasn't a decision. Um, <laughs> it was a surprise. <laughs> I've been there, Jess. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah which mm. has happened to quite a few people, I would imagine. But in in a way, it was kind of a miracle child because it's a bit strange, but I, I got a major injury not long after the Olympics. I broke my hip and I had to spend a lot of time not training, putting on weight, living a normal life. And once I got back into training, that's when, you know, the miracle child happened. And for me, it's been unbelievable because I was in a kind of a situation where I knew I wouldn't be able to get pregnant or the likelihood of getting pregnant when when I'm training so much would be very, very slim. So we always thought that I'd have to finish after Paris and retire Mm -hmm. and then try for kids because obviously I'm what? 35 now so I'm already a geriatric mum now so I would have been even older and then you know you never know how long it may take Mm -hmm. if I I could do it naturally so all these things were laying on my mind a little bit as an athlete and knowing that I'd have to kind of give up a career I love doing to have a family and make that decision so to to kind of have an an injury and have such a, a silver lining within that that I've got pregnant I'm able to you know, have the baby and come back and live and, and continue my career until till whenever I wish. It's been unbelievable because it's just something we never thought would happen. And I'm so grateful that, you know, I, I can do that now and I don't have to quit and I don't have to make a decision between a life as an athlete or a life as a mum. So um, it's a very, very weird whirlwind since the Olympics. But yeah, so I didn't. I didn't actually uh, make the decision. It kind of just came upon me. So many of us don't, Jess. <laughs> as far as you're concerned, this is this is a break. Yeah, it's a kind of a break from competing. But yeah. um, I still train full time, pretty much even now. So, but yeah, it will be. Obviously, I'll have to have a bit of a, a break. So, it's a break in competition. It's not the end, as far as you're concerned. How is that sort of viewed in the sporting world? I wonder. Like, is it something that coaches are supportive of? Like, what about financially speaking? Because there's been a lot of stories recently about poor treatment of athletes by sponsors. And what has that been like for you? 
surprisingly very good like I'd, I'd would have said the same you know it's very unknown as well it always depends on who they are and what sponsors you've got but in terms of my own experience I was a bit nervous about telling a lot of people a lot of British triathlon who who support me the UK sport so when it happened you know I was quite nervous and in fact they were unbelievably good. You know, everyone was just so happy for me. They've been, British Triathlon especially, been so supportive. They've basically said, I, I stay on my funding that I'm on, so it's not reduced. Mm-hmm. And then I can go back to them once I've had the baby and we'll sit down and see where I'm at. Because obviously, births can be so different. Mm. Like, I've been looking into it and there's, a, there's basically you've no idea how it'll go. But at the minute, I want to come back as soon as I can and they support that. But they but they basically have just said, it's up to you. We'll meet in, you know, December, see how you're getting on and we'll go from there. So they've, they've never pressurised me. They've put me in touch with, like, female health, loads of different things to kind of support me as an athlete and to continue training. Again, my sponsors were all brilliant. They've all been really, really supportive. So in terms of, for me, it's been unbelievable. And I think it's only recently been changing, but I have to say it's been extremely good. Do you think that's a common experience for athletes when they get pregnant? It's difficult to say. I think there has been more and more athletes coming back now, certainly in triathlon, different nations. So I'd like to think that, you know, and, and I do know that some of those athletes have had their sponsors that, you know, have stood by them because it, it'd be quite obvious if they did get dropped because you'd, you'd know they wouldn't have the kit and mm. things like that. So I do know that a lot of the athletes have been supported, but I think it'll highly depend on on the, the federations and the, the sport that they're in. But for me, in triathlon, it's been brilliant, but... We're quite a new sport and we're very equal, you know, like we have an equal pay, everything like that in triathlon is quite up to date with that sort of thing. So whether that, that makes a difference and, you know, we're kind of more of a forward thinking sport, I'm not sure. As you say, the intention for you is to be back for the Olympics, which is next year. It doesn't leave you very, very long, Jess. Pregnancy, I do say, with from my own experience, it does take its toll on the body. You said you were still training full time. So what does that look like compared to what it used to look like? How have you been keeping fit? So basically, I, I used to train about 28, 30 hours a week. So I've been in the pool most days, biking most days and running probably like five days a week. Mm-hmm and then gymming twice a week. So all that structure's pretty much stayed the same. The only difference is the intensity, so I can't try as hard because obviously there's less blood flow. So in terms of actual running and riding, the only difference is that I don't ride on the roads. I ride on the turbo stationary or go out on the mountain bike. So there's just little things like that that I've had to adapt. More recently, I've just started to run more frequently for less time rather than you know, going out for an hour and a half or whatever. But yeah, so in terms of training, I've not I've not really had to adapt to anything. I'm still doing quite heavy weights in the gym. And obviously we, we adapted a few things, but no, most stuff I'm still, still managing to do because my body's so used to it. You know, like if I wouldn't advise someone to do, you know, 25, 28 hours a week exercise if they were eight months pregnant and they'd never done it before. But because my body's so used to that amount of training, it, it's not really taking its toll or you know 
I've not been tired from it. So as long as I listen to my body and I have a day off, if I do feel tired, then then that's great. But yeah, so far, so good. Is it frustrating having to lower the intensity? Do you feel like, oh, I just want to, or are you just like, no, nah, this is fine. I'm okay with this. <laughs> I actually thought that would be the hardest thing. Cause that's the bit I love. That's the bit I love about training is like pushing myself. But I've actually found it all right because, yeah, your body adapts. And I think I know that, it would be even harder to do it you know because you've got your body changes so much you've got a lot more weight and everything you're just slower so even going a pace that is way slower than I would ever go it's actually enough it's just like it's, it's the same as I'm so for example I'd run normal like seven minute miling I'm now running eight thirties or slower and I think well it feels the same as seven minute mileage, but I'm actually going slower. So it's weird that I'm still kind of doing, it feels like I'm doing similar stuff, but I'm not at all. It's, everything's just a bit more not uncomfortable, but yeah, I don't feel like I, I would want to push myself, which I'm surprised at because I, I thought the exact same that I'd struggle with that. And I've, I've not, I don't, I'm just happy doing, plodding along. <laughs> To me, that is incredible because I have never been able to run an eight and a half minute mile. I mean, obviously, I'm you know I'm not an elite athlete, but like <laughs> I've never been able to run that fast. And when I was eight months pregnant, I would walk for twenty minutes and my left leg would go dead because yeah. the weight had started to push on a nerve, basically. Mm. And so I would actually be like, I, I can't walk for more than like twenty minutes because I'm losing the feeling in my leg at this stage. <laughs> so yeah. to me, that sounds just incredible do you think that pregnant women particularly there's a lot of chat about what you can't do when you're pregnant but obviously you are demonstrating that you know you can still do quite remarkable things right I mean as you said you wouldn't advise someone who's not an elite athlete to go and start training 25 whatever hours a week (laughs) but but it is I, I do think there's a lot of emphasis on what you can't do when you're pregnant and obviously what you're showing us is that that it doesn't have to be that way no, definitely. And I find that I've obviously had loads of comments from the older generation that think it's absolutely mental. I mean, they don't really understand the new research or anything like that. But then I've even spoken to other females that are really active that, that maybe don't do the same amount as, as me, but maybe run most of the time. I was speaking to a girl the other day, she'd gone out for a run and she just started to get a little bit of ligament you know, sensation at the front of her stomach which I've had as well but what I've done is I, I, I just walked let it you know simmer tried again and it were fine so I'd go out with John or whatever and I'd say sorry we're gonna have to stop and then you know I'd let it settle and then set off again and she said that when it happened to her she would just she just stopped running then she was like oh no I can't do it whereas that happened when I was probably about 13 weeks pregnant it's hardly happened since I think some people are just a bit scared whereas I found that I've just tried to listen to my body and if I if I one day I have to walk running I'll walk but the next day I might be able to run and I'll run so as long as I feel comfortable in that and I know that I'm not doing any harm to my baby then yeah I I just want to get the word out there really that it it is all right to do active things and I found that my pregnancy has been a dream whether that is because I'm excited or not you know I could just be lucky and then I'm going to get a screaming baby and I'll (laughs) be uh, (laughs) be feeling but you know there's things that you, you obviously got pelvic pain and there is other athletes that have had that that can't do anything on the bike because of the pelvic so a lot of it can be just 
look really, can't it? But I think listening to your body is the main thing in pregnancy. Obviously, I do have to caveat this with, again, you are an elite level athlete and people should consult their doctors or midwives or whatever if they want to take up a sport or, or, you know, it is something you should talk to a medical professional about. So Jess, you are obviously taking a break for the time being from, from competition, but there are some triathlon events coming up over the summer. Any of your teammates you want to suggest that we look out for? Who, who are the ones to watch at the moment in, in the triathlon? Well, I would say one of my close friends, George Taylor-Brown, but unfortunately she's injured, so I, I uh, will have to push her aside. We've got Sophie Caldwell. She has been doing very well. She's one of the top girls on the podium at World Series. And Beth Potter, again, fellow Leeds athlete, and she has also been topping the charts at the World Series. So those, those two are probably my main top picks. And then for the, for the boys, there's old school Johnny Brownlee, which... You can't. You well, if you're into triathlon, you'll know who he is. Mm-hmm. And the young boy Alex G, he's also been up there in all the World Series. So there's there's a uh, four athletes there to look out for. I think in the next few months of racing. And what are you looking forward to seeing? Is there anything coming up that you you'll be keeping a close eye on? Well, the test event should be quite interesting. So they'll, they'll go to to race the course that will be on the Olympics. And there's a lot of athletes that have to perform there to go to the Olympic Games. So if they don't perform, they might not get selected. Mm -hmm. So that always adds a little bit of spice to a race. So Mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to see what the course is like there and how they can manage the water quality, I think. So, yeah, probably the test event in August. So what is the path for you in terms of qualification? Because obviously you're not, you know, you're not going to be at that event. No. (laughs) Far from it. Yeah, so they could pre-select... Uh, potentially two athletes or maybe three if the priest like three athletes i'd be kind of banking on you know injuries and things like that but they they would have already kind of sealed it off so that i'd be me out of the out of the looking but if not there'll be another race early next year maybe may time where you can get selected there so if all things been well i'd be going for that race Jess, thank you very much for joining me. This has been really interesting. I do, I do find this stuff fascinating, having obviously been through pregnancy myself, but also just, you know, what, what people can achieve, I think is, is yeah. like really interesting. Where can we follow you on social media if we want to sort of keep up to date with your journey into motherhood and beyond? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram. That's probably the best place to find me. I think it's Jess underscore Liam on Classic. Uh, and yeah, I try to keep up to date with just a few bits and bobs on the on the stories of what i'm up to and and uh yeah just a few updates of each week that goes by so yeah follow me on there and uh thank you for the chat sir welcome to rated or dated mickey which festival of throwing people into shelving units did we watch this week (laughs) this week Swish's leather trench coat. Oh. We watched Vampires via Marvel, courtesy of 1998's Blade, a fast-paced two hours of eponymous daywalker Wesley Snipes blasting, slashing, and kung fu kicking countless bloodsuckers into oblivion. This is an action movie that takes action seriously, with director Stephen Norrington basically just linking one breathless combat sequence to the next with barely a thought for plot. But it's one that also doesn't take itself too seriously. 
laying it all uh-huh. on extra thick with plenty of moments of sheer daft, uber-violent madness. And by plenty, I mean around two hours. This is very much Snipes' film, and indeed Think Snipes, Think Blade, but he is ably assisted by Chris Christopherson's Whistler, Naboucher Wright's Dr. Karen Jensen, and 1990s boy band villain Deacon Frost, played by 1990s boy band actor Stephen Dorff, who clearly really enjoyed Kiefer Sutherland in everything up to this point. <laughs> Blade was a commercial hit, bringing in $70 million at the US box office and a further $60.2 million worldwide. Full maths, that is a lot of million dollars, of which Marvel took home a sweet, sweet flat rate of $25,000. Doll. Critics were not as impressed, and actually our old pal Roger Ebert was in the minority with his three out of four star review praising Blade's fierce, plentiful and appropriately stylish action. And to be fair, most critics enjoyed Blade's dazzling full throttle action, but weren't fans of the paper thin plot and occasionally not so dazzling full throttle dialogue. But how? What are critics know? Box office ka-ching led to two sequels. Blade 2 in 2002, which, fat fans, was directed by Guillermo del Toro and features Luke Goss from Bross. Hello. And Blade Trinity in 2004, which, fat fans, features some of the worst CGI eyes you have ever witnessed. Well worth looking up. And giving the finger to the film still just 57% critics rating on Rotten Tomatoes, Blade is due for another comeback, officially making its way into the Marvel Cinematic Universe next autumn starring Mahershala Ali in the title role. The Blade trilogy also spawned a TV show, but best not to talk about that. Pretty much everyone involved in Blade, the series, prefers it that way. Back to this Blade, which underwent a lot of reshoots. I love this so much. It underwent a lot of reshoots in order to get the big baddie looking less silly. Seriously, to get it to look (laughs) as good as it does, they had to do a lot of reshoots. I'm not even taking the piss. Even though the end of this, Stephen Dorff ends up looking like a massive misshapen red pepper before exploding. He actually looked <laughs> much, much worse to begin with. CGI was still in its infancy in 1997, but the producers really, really wanted to use a fully CGI monster. And Deacon Frost was meant to turn into a tornado of blood, you know, making it harder for Blade to fight him. It, I, I don't know a tornado of blood's pronouns, but. This was savaged by the test audience, hence the uh, weird red pepper we get in reality. Still, all is well that ends well, or, you know, ends slightly less ridiculously. And Blade paved the way for the onslaught of comic book slash superhero movies in cinemas today, which you may or may not want to thank it for. Now, it is no news to regular listeners that I am something of a horror wuss, but vampires and werewolves have always, for some reason, been acceptable in my tiny horror-averse brain. And so I saw Blade twice at the cinema when it came out, and many, many times on video and DVD afterwards, although I haven't seen it for a really long time, and I was actually really surprised by how damn gory and violent it was. So first question, Jen, you okay, hon? I've seen this film a bunch of times before because this is like about the age that my brothers would have been watching stuff like this or rather about the time. So I have seen it a bunch of times before. I think I used to really like it. I've not watched it again for a long time. I was surprised by how gory it was given that I used to like it. And there were a fair few moments where I was like, I'm probably not going to see where this goes. 
and averted my eyes. Like when heads were obviously about to explode, uh-huh. I was like, I'm probably not going to watch this bit. That's a good 30 minutes of the film, Jen. And then sometimes I'd watch them just sort of like, oh, and you'd just be like, <laughs> this looks fucking shit, doesn't it? Like it really does look pretty shit, a lot of it. Hannah, have you seen it before? No, I haven't. And I actually spoke to my brother yesterday and he asked what we've watched this week. And I I said it with Blade. And he was amazed that I hadn't seen it before, given that he's watched it a million times because he's like the same age as you and your brothers, Jen. Yeah. What, 1998? Yeah. Yeah, 1998, I lived in Australia. So I didn't really go to the cinema very much. Fair enough. Okay, the the plot, plot, sure, let's call it a plot, why not? Blade's mum is bitten by a vampire just as she's about to go into labour. She dies on the operating table. Hello. I don't understand. What do you understand? Just to be clear, his bit, it just, the minute this started, I just thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. So then my brain continued that way throughout it. She's been bitten. I know, but it, it doesn't make any sense because how can it be half human and half vampire? It's got the vampire because... venom in it or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get that. But. Once humans get the vampire venom in them, they turn into vampires. So how can there be like this midway point? I think probably. Uh, I don't want to derail this too early on, Mick. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's fucked off. It's gone. <laughs> what I think probably they're driving at is that because he's not actually her, he's just inside her. So the venom's like maybe only gotten so far, if you see what I mean. So she's fucked. She dead. But he's... Not. No, she's not. Well, no, but we don't know that at that point, do we? No, but it's still valid to the plot that she's not. You're wrong. She is dead. She becomes the undead, like she becomes yeah. a vampire, but she's dead as a human. Her human life is over. Right. Maybe it's like time travel. It's not meant to be understood. Sorry, Mickey, do continue. I think he sort of drinks the vampire blood rather than being bitten. That is what makes yeah. a difference. So, in yeah, vampire maybe. lore, if you if a human drinks vampire blood, like in True Blood, when Bill gives sucking vampire blood, she becomes stronger and mends faster yeah. like a vampire. It just doesn't last. So I think because he's imbibed it in the womb, like literally like a minute before he comes out, but nevertheless, that's why it doesn't make him a full vampire. Yeah, because you can be like killed by a vampire or become a vampire, right, as a yeah. result of a vampire bite. It just sort of, it depends on... How the bite goes down. I, yeah. I don't make the rules. Which is yeah. uh, slightly different to most vampire lore within this film. So, Hannah, I mean, I think it's absolutely fair for you to ask questions. I won't always have the answers. I don't think Blade always okay. has the answers. <laughs> but there are some answers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she dies, in inverted commas, because, you know, spoiler, on the operating table. But her son survives. But he's no human, as we have just discussed. Blade is a vampire mole hybrid known as a dampier, giving him all of the strengths of a vampire, but none of the weaknesses. Well, he is really thirsty for blood, but I guess that's only a weakness if you're trying to save the human race and not eat the human race. Bummer for Blade. Luckily, his longtime pal slash sort of father figure Whistler, a glorious Chris Christopherson, has created a serum that keeps Blade's hangry nature in check for now. And... Extra luckily, Blaze just saved hematologist Dr. Karen Jensen. That's right, a hematologist. How fortunate is that? These are our good guys. Now, someone who has no problem with viewing humans as cattle is Deacon Frost. That's Stephen Dorff, a stereotypical vampire villain who wants his kind to rule the world and eat the humans willy-nilly without all this secretive nonsense. 
He has got some excellent comic book character sidekicks, including Donal Logues Quinn, a sort of cowboy roadie with frat boy energy, and Pearl, the world's fattest vampire. Oh, and also Tracy Lords as Raquel, stereotypical sexy lady vampire. These are our bad guys. You know who Tracy Lords originally was? Yeah. No. She was a porn star. Ah. So there was this big deal about how she'd made a breakout of porn acting to be cast, you know, as a sexy temptress woman in this. I mean, it wasn't really that different, was it? But anyway. She's very much one of our bad guys. We have our good guys. We have our bad guys. And now, fight, fight, fight more fighting. Oh, yeah. but what fights? What's this? Karen's discovered that anticoagulant explodes vampires. Yes, mate. Tomato sauce for everyone. <laughs> There's an ancient vampire ritual to make Frost, a blood god called the Magra, which works. There's a meeting between Blade and his mum, who he thought was dead, but is not dead and is actually a vampire. Doesn't go well. Karen fights her ex, so even as a zombie can't say no for an answer. There's an epic fight between Blade and Frost. I mean, come on now. What more do you want, people? Too long, don't listen. Blade is a semi-vampire who kills full-on vampires and has to stop one particular vampire from bringing an end to humanity. No messing, much fighting. So, Hannah, are we too old for this shit? Oh, <laughs> my God. I actually sent Mickey a message. Chris Christopherson actually says that in this, that he's getting too old for this shit, which is glorious. I mean, I'm not averse to a bit of shit, obviously, because it can be quite fun. And so I had quite a lot of fun as such watching this and it did actually help explain a number of jokes in what we do in the shadows that i did not previously <laughs> understood Which wesley snipes makes a little cameo in right yeah yeah also donald Logue is in it as well but having now seen you know where marvel films have gone and also stuff like deadpool so you know the, the thor ragnarok which is really funny guardians of the galaxy the first two of those are really funny you know and deadpool it feels like this is in this odd hinterland where it's not taking itself too seriously, but it hasn't fully embraced how camp and funny it could yeah, be. Yeah, I agree. So it sort of sits in the middle a bit and therefore I, it didn't really do much for me. It's screaming out for more jokes when I rewatched it. Yeah. I was like, and I yeah. think they would do it so well because the action's really high camp. So I think with yeah. some like absolute zingers, it would be, for me, an even better film. Yeah, Wesley Snipes is way too serious, way too serious in it. I think he's, he, he, I feel like he's taking the role very seriously and the role does not demand to be taken seriously. It wasn't trying to be a comedy in Blade's defence at the time. It was trying to no. be an action horror movie. And I think yeah. it would even work with Wesley Snipes still being a very serious Blade. Think like Nick Cage in Con Air who thinks he's in a, just a serious action movie and just everyone else yeah. having a lovely time. And there's yeah. a little bit of that with Donal Logue, I think. But yeah, there's not quite enough of it. And Chris Christopherson, I think, is playing it a little bit camp. Well, he's getting too old for this shit, Matt. Indeed. Criticisms aside for a moment, I mean, I'm sure you'll have some more. But I'm, I am going to put it out there that Blood Rave is one of the finest openers to an action movie. Thoughts, please? No. <laughs> well, see, this is another joke that having reasonably recently watched the fourth series of what we do, in the shadows, Cassia is absolutely obsessed with blood sprinklers, which <laughs> I didn't know what they were until I watched this. It seems terribly wasteful of blood. That's what I thought. What a waste! <laughs> yeah, that's like, like throwing food around, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. like you know, going to a party and you just like spray fucking vodka Champagne. or something out of yeah. the 
champagne is a better example. But yeah, just spraying like loads of booze out of it. And then what do you do? You just like, wicked, now I'm covered in something that I actually want to drink. Like, it's just silly, isn't it? <laughs> People do do that with champagne, though. At like the end of races and stuff, they get the big magnum. Look, if I went to a club and I was doused with champagne, I'd be pissed off. I wouldn't be happy about it. I'd be pissed off. I didn't have you two down for sort of partridge when it came to smearing chocolate on people, to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) But now I know. Do you want a little fun fact slash it's coming in uh, the form of a question for you? You get one. Please. Donal Logue, i.e. vampire Minion Quinn, who we've mentioned a couple of times, dislocated his jaw while filming. How do you think it happened? And he slipped over in blood that was on the floor and had come out of a sprinkler. Incorrect, Jen. <laughs> oh, God, I've no idea. Uh, was he being a dickhead? Someone, I don't know. I don't know. He screamed too vigorously. He screamed so hard, he dislocated his jaw. Wow. It's me doing an artist's impression of roughly what that would have looked like. He must have TMJ as well, then he must have a really clicky jaw if he's done that. Fucking hell, How? Yeah, apparently he had dislocated his jaw in the past and he just really went for it in a screaming scene and had to be rushed to hospital. Director Stephen Nointer said, I've got this guy who's dressed as a third degree burns victim, essentially naked, running in with his jaw hanging down. <laughs> oh, man. I would imagine that actually the second part of the screaming was just screaming because he dislocated <laughs> his jaw. I wonder if they used um, it in the final in the final cut. <laughs> That's like that story when Gary Oldman got taken to hospital dressed as a skinhead and they'd been knocked unconscious and he kept coming around and saying, I'm an actor, these are my real clothes. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Can we talk about Dr. Karen Jensen, a.k.a. the the woman in the film, basically? The only woman (laughs) in the film. I know his mum's in it as well, but you know. And And the sexy one. Yeah. But I think we've covered them. I think... Even though she is the only woman in the film, she is a kind of kick-ass character. She's a doctor. Yeah. I liked her. She's smart. She's pivotal. And crucially for me, she doesn't get off with Blade. Yeah, yeah. She's also a woman of colour. And actually, this film, for a film made in the 90s in Hollywood, has a lot of people of colour in it. So, you know, that is worth commenting on. Well done. Yeah, I mean, I had no problems with her. She was not dislikable. I, I didn't want her to be killed. Yeah, she was good. Also, a hematol- handy though, guys, right? Handy. I mean, wowzers. Absolutely wowzers. <laughs> what was the hematologist doing? I mean, I, I suppose she was called in because his bloods were unusual. And as a hematologist, I suppose she would be the one with the answers. But yeah, like, I guess you don't, I, I don't know. Like, do you normally get hematologists working in pathology? I don't know. As problematic plot points go, Jen, I think... <laughs> I picked from a much wider variety. I mean, I've got a few, Vic. I've got a few, but that's that's just one that immediately springs to mind. And see what you like about the American healthcare system. They dealt with him before he like came back. I mean, if that was the NHS, he'd still be in, in a corridor, he'd still be in a bay, like parked out the front, wouldn't they? Few. <laughs> I mean, this was the nineties. Things were a little bit different then. Oh, things can only get better. I guess this is it's a big. It's sort of the biggest question, because watching it, it is so ridiculously flawed. The plot is just barely there at all. The dialogue is quite clunky. And I was a bit like, oh, I love this film so hard. And I love Wesley Snipes in this role. But he gets very little to say. And there's a couple of mm. little zingers he does. But they're a bit weird. Like when he goes, some motherfuckers are always trying to skate uphill. What does that mean? I don't know. Surely you can skate uphill. It's not that hard, is it? <laughs> like, 
I think he's like he's yeah. kind of wasted in this a bit because he's done. Has he done Demolition Man by this point? Because I think he's brilliant in Demolition Man. I he's super camp. Mm. It's basically what you want this film to be. But obviously he's a villain in Demolition Man and he's not in this. But it's kind of like, it's, yeah, I, I sort of think he does do sort of like camp comedy quite well. And I, d- I just feel like he's wasted in this. There's an interesting reasoning behind Snipes taking the role. Initially, LL Cool J was up for the role of O-M-G. Blade when it was first mooted as an option in 1992. And obviously it took quite a long time to make. And Snipes took it and basically knew nothing really about vampires, wasn't into all that shit, and hadn't read the comic book. Very few people had at the time. I'm sure I'll get someone after me to tell me that I'm incorrect. Feel yeah. free. But yeah, so Snipes said that what he wanted to do was play Blade as a sort of black exploitation character and just this cool yeah. man of colour with incredible martial arts skills, which Snipes has himself. So that's how he went into it as an action movie, as opposed to Demolition Man. The script is clearly a comedy. It's an action comedy. There's there's very funny lines in there. Whereas this was very much a straight film. So I think that's why he's very straight in it. But I I wondered, because you're both, particularly Hannah, like an inconsistent plot can absolutely ruin it for you, even if you're having a lovely time. And I wondered if it had been silly enough that you got over that or whether it just ruined it for you. Oh, I mean, it didn't ruin it because it it just, like I say, from the minute that I didn't understand, it's a bit like all time travel stuff that I I feel like all time travel stuff is fundamentally flawed. Don't at me. And (laughs) I, uh, I felt the same with this. I just thought, right, I just does that. That initial bit doesn't make any. Can't I can't pass any logical sense out of that. So therefore, the rest of it can be as bonkers as it fucking likes. It's an original premise is so flawed a bit like my cousin Vinny the original plot is so fucking <laughs> yeah. flawed that everything else you're just like oh what the hell this is happening now okay then okay then I was surprised that I liked it when I first saw it for a bunch of reasons like I, I think I must have thought I don't know I think I must have thought it was like cool at the time or something otherwise I don't really know what what this had for me for like a 15 year old Jen I'm not sure what unless I fancied Wesley Snipes or something I don't know what this film had for me I do like vampire stuff but this is not really like a lot of the other vampire stuff I've seen it's a lot more kind of like action based than sort of angst well not least because SPF 50 works in this in this universe <laughs> Oh, I love it. There's another film called Sundown. Oh, maybe I'll I'll look and see if it's got a birthday because seriously, it makes Blade look like Shakespeare. Not even a Shakespearean comedy, like a proper Shakespeare. It is so silly. The vampires will work out that if you wear SPF. I don't even think 50 was a thing. He's probably in like SPF 8, which is what my mum thought was really high (laughs) in the 1990s, right? Just need to put that on once a week. It's fine. Pass me the two, Mickey. It's getting a bit hot. Do you have a thing that surprised me about this? And I'm not like, I I don't watch a lot of like Marvel or or whatever, like comic based films. Like it's it's not really my bag. But usually now when they make them, they're quite family friendly, right? Like the idea is to appeal to a broader market. So I was quite surprised, not just by how sort of like gory it was, but also like all the swears and stuff, you know, the motherfuckers and whatever. Like I was surprised by that because that's not really how they make those films anymore, right? No, they don't. You're right. But well, this is an 18, and so, yeah. And I love that yeah. it, it means it can be really violent and sweary and darker. 
But it's not dark in the way that, say, Batman no. is dark. Or the way that Daredevil is dark. It's just gory. Well, it's interesting yeah. you say that about Batman and Daredevil. So the Batman that had come before was Batman and Robin, which is, which is like all, almost trash, old school yeah. campy, yeah. right? And yeah. so this mm. came, and I think people had gone, we're not going to go and watch more superhero movies. Batman and Robin was a pile of camp shit. And then this came and they were like, there is an appetite for it because even though the critics were like guys plot dialogue the, the, the audience were like mm, uh. nom, 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 sprinkle blood yes please and so it paved the way for the the marvel universe that we see now and i think it'll be interesting i mean i don't know whether you guys are going to come and watch it with me but what blade is like next year when it is part oh definitely of mcu yeah. anything that yeah, mahashala ali's in i'll go and see to be fair because i think he's incredible i want to ask you mickey what you made of it what was the gap between the last time you saw this? It must be 20 years at least. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I saw it when I was at university and watched it and watched it and watched it. And yeah, I don't think I've seen it since my mid-20s. I had a really lovely time. You Come on. Sure. I think, you know, Jen claims to be the basic bitch, but it, we, we all know who it really is. <laughs> I'm like... I think we, we've got different levels of basic <laughs> bits, haven't we? We like quite different basic things, I would say. I think musically, I'm going to allow you to have the title, but when it comes to movies. But no yeah, way. just, I really like how simple the plot in inverted commas is. I really like how violent it is. Cause it's just very funny. And I actually think Snipes is wicked as Blade. I think he is very cool. But I mean, I'm aware how silly and flawed it is as well. And Pearl always makes me feel a little bit queasy. That was still mm. there. Oh, yeah, that's disgusting. Mm. When they say to her later, I've got an old friend for you, I thought, oh, God, it's going to be that gross, fat, burnt thing again. I was quite relieved it was the shit ex-boyfriend, <laughs> if I'm honest. Blade rated or dated? As I said, I used to enjoy it and I was surprised watching it again that I used to enjoy it so I didn't really enjoy it this time around but what I would say in terms of like the effects are very very mm. very dated they do so not I, I think in in that respect it is dated yes I agree with that bit it's dated I also wouldn't advise anyone to watch it oh. given that they might not have the same interesting kit shit as we do so it's a rather bloody dated from me Rated. I had an incredible time. The CGI is absolutely dated. You're so right. The effects do not stand up at all, but they just made me laugh a lot. I'm not even sure they stood up the first time I watched it, if I'm honest with you. Mm. But I don't think, as a vampire movie goes, that it is dated because, you know, vampires are really old. So they've been doing this shit for centuries. I just think Wesley Sykes is really cool, isn't it? Rating this. <laughs> Someone bring some class back to this section. What are we watching next week? Oh, we're going into the actual past, 1963, and we're going to watch Billy Liar, bit of kitchen sink drama for you. So Tom Courtney once told me that I was a very good journalist. Oh, well, gel. Standard issue for all women.